it's not just the regeneration podcast today grail country has joined us <laughs> welcome grail country to the regeneration podcast Thank it you. is yeah it's great to be here michael yeah. and mike Jerry. it's like one of those 1970s shows the battle of the network stars or something, i know right? <laughs> or where the cast of the brady bunch shows up on fantasy uh, i'm telling you yeah yeah that is so, yeah so uh what do you guys want to talk about we're actually we're here to talk about believe it or not the holy grail oh, i'm nervous now. because who better to talk to about the holy grail than grail country even though so, i've only had one explicitly grail related conversation i reference it all the time but i've only had one explicitly grail related conversation in the history of the channel so well, who was it with was that with martin shaw yeah martin shaw we talked about the snowy tower which is his retelling of uh, of uh, Parcival. Box, Parcival. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll I guess a good place to start then was Nate. Why Grail Country? Mm, that's a good place to start. Good question. Well, because of because of the way I read what the Grail is about, story is about, which is. <laughs> 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 I don't want to give this. I don't want to like give spoilers right off the bat. So I'm just gonna leave. I'm not going to actually say. I'm not actually. I'm, I want to give time to to actually okay. have that come out during the course of the conversation. But that's why it's called Grill Country is because of what I think. What I think the real stories are really about. That's why I called the channel. That's why I called the the channel Grill Country, because I wanted it to be a place where people could be seeking the Grail. Because the Grail quest is something that is always ongoing all the time. And the Grail story is about you. And I'll just add that <laughs> it, it makes the most sense in the world because Nate looks like he jumped right off the pages. That's right. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. I started researching the Grail because uh. I looked like somebody who was going to be really into the Grail and drop it at cocktail parties. <laughs> You know, with me, it's like my, I was just my interest in the Grail comes from my general interest in all things Arthurania that started like very early in life, like among the first books I read and I read early and among the very first books that I read in very early childhood were uh, versions of the Arthurian legend that were written for children, mm -hmm. which we me had too. really good editions of when I was a kid, when I was a kid not too. so much anymore. But there were really good versions of the Arthurian legends for children in those days. And those were the things that I read the most and loved the most. And yep. I had plastic knights and Playmobil knights and basically wanted to be a knight my whole life. And uh, the Grail Quest tells us that we are to be knights in a very particular mm -hmm. and interesting way. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say. What <laughs> hold, hold on a second. Hey, yeah, Zelly. No Zelly, go grab me the Holy Grail. Uh-oh. I didn't tell I you I actually have it. You have the grail. Amazing. Not a lot of that people sucks. been at, since people have been wondering, you know. This is really weird. It's in it's in <laughs> Now we're gonna have to make a pilgrimage to Euros. That's right. <laughs> well, I guess when the uh I guess when the uh the authority of Britain transferred to uh, the Americas, I guess it would only make sense if somehow uh, the Grail ended up in North America. Now, again, I don't know that much about the Grail, but I know a lot about geopolitics. Let's go. <laughs> World War One. Behold. Oh, wow. <laughs> Behold. There you go right there. Gorgeous. That's what we use for house church. But anyway. Uh, I'm going to be right back because I uh, have no problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things about the Grail, like, of course, is that it takes many forms. 
That's right. It's 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 off. It's never the same from one telling to another. How about we begin? How can I begin with then? At like a question, especially for Nate. Like I don't know that much about the Grail. I've read, in one sense, the Grail as a symbol is big to me. I don't know Arthuriana too well. I've read a lot of Charles Williams, and I've spent time with his poetry and uh, the great novel that people haven't read, Porius, uh, by John Cowper Powis, nine hundred pages, has a lot to do with the Grail and Arthur. Those are a little more esoteric, but the other. The other week, I was reading an article by a, a scholar in Canada. His name is Christian Roy, I believe. But, you know, the basic notion in the Catholic Church after COVID, they took the cup away. And this guy was writing an article. It was on Oswald Spengler. Um, but he was mentioning something that could seem to fit quite simply, that, you know, you have uh, the doctrine, say, of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It starts to, like, left brain the whole thing. And then... Um, all of a sudden in the Catholic church, people are so worried about like a part of the host falling on the ground. And then especially water, which is very feminine, the fact that a drop could spill. But you know, the, the communion cup gets taken away. The grail legends start again, right? And there's something about the divine feminine in those. And I'm just bringing it back to say, you know, so hold that thought. Is there any, is there any credence to the origin in that? But here post COVID, right? The, the grail gets ripped away. The bishops are talking about three years of like almost indoctrination of, you know, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, you know, is is there any connection for people who study the grail that this type of thinking, this type of central symbol came up when the original chalice was kind of taken away from the Catholic communion? Well, certainly like historically, the grail stories start to come about at the same time that the doctrine of transubstantiation is starting to be articulated. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think what, and I think that the, the grail is connected to the Eucharist, but the thing is, is that I think what the grail represents is, is an esoteric Eucharist that is a parallel to the exoteric Eucharist. Yeah. So it, it points to a deeper communion that is symbolized within the exoteric Eucharist. So, and yeah. in terms of the connection with the divine feminine, like the bearers of the grail items are, are always are women. Always women always women right. that bear the, the items and it's not just and it's also it's not just the grail there are the, also these other relics that are associated you have the drip you have the bleeding lance you have the candelabra um um in Eschenbach's version the grail is actually a stone and it can take, take sometimes it's a serving dish sometimes it's a chalice sometimes it's a stone mm -hmm. um but i think in all cases it's pointing toward this deeper sense of the eucharist is it um, it really is about the real presence i mean not just real presence in the eucharist but the real presence in the universe in which, the earth yeah, which, yeah. which is life. which was yeah. which was <laughs> yeah. sergey bulgakov's argument right correct I, which, I, yes, and exactly. i think i've read that book for sure so i think i mean i've, I've been thinking about this thing topic for 30 some years and mm. i and it's not let's like with uh you know anything that has symbolic import you there's not like a it it's not allegory it doesn't this represents that right <laughs> it's it's kind of mixed up and plastic and elusive and but i do think you know as we mentioned uh that this literature kind of arose right around the time of the the hammering down of the doctrine of transubstantiation which is also the time the chalice was withdrawn from the faithful that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was taken away from the faithful and the chalice was reserved for the priesthood only. I never knew that. 
Yeah, um, it also spreads in, in the same part of France at the same time that Kabbalah is reemerging too. And there are definitely 100% Kabbalistic elements in this. And that's right. because it's, it's, it's pointing toward this sort of deeper Eucharist. Right. which is connected to uh, Malakut, which is connected to the throne the visions. Yeah. And, I, but I, yeah. and I, but I think also part of what influenced the symbol, influence the symbol, not is the symbol in the West, is that when Crusaders went to the East, there mm -hmm. they saw a Eucharist that was still celebrated, as Sherry knows, through, from the chalice, mm -hmm. right? Both that because in the Eastern Church, the, the particles are put into the wine, into the chalice, into the holy blood, and the faithful are given both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, so I think that's that's important, and I think that figures into it because I, it's a, in a way, you know, the the search for the Holy Grail is the search for what has been lost. And there's a connection of what of what's been lost in the East too. That's definitely there throughout all the material. And one of the things that that Wait points out in his book on the Holy Grail is there's in some of the Grail material you have this notion of like secret words associated with. Uh, the Eucharist besides the, the, the words of initiation. And um, he suggests that those are uh, a, a rediscovery of the epiclesis in the Orthodox. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And then you talk so, about Arthur Edward Waite, the, the, yeah, the eight, 19th and early 20th century scholar. I mean, he really was. People talk a lot of trash about A.E. Waite, but I can't imagine <laughs> the world without him. I mean, some people call him dead weight because he's <laughs> a little dry. He's a little dry. He's very pedantic, but <laughs> but it's really informative <laughs> stuff. And he, uh, whether it's on, he wrote two books. But he's a Grail. poet, and it shows in some of his <clears throat> lines. Mm -hmm. I mean, like there, I, I was rereading the other day, oh. and uh, I I shared that line of his about how yeah I saw that um, we can no longer it, it, no longer talk about being the shadow of in the shadow of death because the darkness is now sown with stars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and he and he also was a Freemason and he was in the Golden Dawn, so he, he was very much in part of the occult revival that happened in, at that time in history. Mm -hmm. um, Let me so add one. So he has a very he's got a, a very esoteric street cred, which he brings to it, which Charles also Williams informs was his in the reading. Golden, Charles Williams was also in the Golden Dawn, and they knew each other, right? Yes. Yeah. The um, one thing in not reading about the Grail, but you know, the same time. As the chalice was taken away and so forth, my uh, my hero Ivan Illich will point out that same time period, you have haggling in the marketplace, you know, conversation set by the replaced by the fixed price, you know, meaning that for me, you know, you have all these things that were kind of fluid, involved again the marketplace conversational with a versa, you know, Tom Bird gets into this in whatever tarot card, the the flowing between water cups, the versa, right. the conversation. All yeah. this fluidity you know, is being um, very, I'm going to say, again, I, I do this stuff too much, but very left-brained, right? You know, mm -hmm. that we define the Eucharist, the mystery is gone. But again, and now as we're moving into possibly like a cashless society, it's right. a good time to talk about the symbolism. You know, I'm very interested in the male-female symbolism. And um, right. I think that notion from haggling <clears throat> the marketplace to the set price is another one of these things that captures that poetic shift to a world that was becoming the wasteland, right? right. You know, an objectified world that, to right. Mike's point, is not real anymore. Um, you know, well, okay, be, before well, we go, 
Before we go there, I just want to ask one quick question. Is it, do you think that this loss of the chalice and the immersion, uh, uh, emergence of the, of the grail story is prophetic of what, <laughs> of what, what's to come like modernity and like what Mike just described this wasteland? Because it feels to me like we're still looking like we, the, the, the pull of that story is definitely that we, you know, it's like the U2 song, right? I still haven't found what I'm And the grail, the grail is removed to the east in a lot of these stories, too. Like, oh, okay. once the grail has been discovered, it's, it's either taken away into heaven or it's removed from the east. So there's a way in which you can kind of almost see it hinting at, like, the modernity that's coming. Because these are written at the dawn of the birth uh -huh. of the modern consciousness. Right. And, but okay, I want to I want to I want to pull back a little bit because Nate said something earlier and so did Mike about the importance of the feminine in this in, in these these stories where in the Grail processions it's all women right. Um, some scholars see the influence of what we can now call the Celtic Church, because mm. the the Celtic Church was very different from the Roman Church and from the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah. The Celtic Church kind of had elements of both. I mean, it wasn't like either one, but it was, it you know, the thing is, you got to think, you know, in, in those days, you know, communication was was slow. So, so uh, bureaucratic control was almost non-existent. So different churches kind of grew organically and according to their local customs and, lo and local uh, languages and culture. And the Celtic church, uh, there's even suggested that St. Bridget, for instance, was really a bishop. That So the women had a much more, uh, uh, in Celtic culture in, in general, uh, women had a much more uh, authoritative position in the culture, un unlike, you know, uh, in the Middle East, say, or in parts of Western Europe, so and and there's a, there's a suggestion that uh, Saint Patrick was the nephew of Saint Martin of Tours, and where he went to be be ordained, the seminary or whatever it was, but it was in the south of France, and it was th that monastery was much more like the monasteries in North Africa, which were very Greek, and as you, as we know the. The Irish saved civilization because they were the only ones who had Greek through the Dark Ages, the so-called Dark Age Ages. And so the monasticism that St. Patrick and the Irish monks brought to Ireland was more, not ex not ex and again, it was more <laughs> adapted to local conditions, but it was had more in common with Eastern monasticism than Western monasticism. Because, and also the Celtic church was not an urban-centered church. Mm. Every place else was urban centered and it spread out from the cities. But in Ireland, there were no cities. So it was a, a very different animal there. And so, you know, their Eucharistic uh, practices mm -hmm. were very different. And, and you have to think that at this time, uh, w w when the, we call it the Fourth Letter and Council of 1215, when they laid down the law about the transfiguration or trans, uh, transubstantiation, uh, that was a bureaucratic, you know, every time the church is freaking out, they, let's have a council. I'm freaking out about stuff. And so they try to get everybody to, to get into line. Of course, the Irish did not get into line, but it took them a couple hundred years to get the Irish back into line.
Um, so I think all those, that kind of instability, which is a great thing for creativity, but it's also a great thing for the imagination, which mm. all those things I think contributed to this mythos of, of the Holy Grail. Mm. And I think, Nate, Maybe you could tell us, um, tell, tell our audience, not Nathaniel, about <laughs> the two basic grail streams. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. The one, before I go into the two basic grail streams, I just wanted to tie in the grail into what you were just talking about. Because the grail obviously becomes important to the identity of the Celtic church. Because it's through the grail, grail material that you have the link. Uh, to Joseph of Arimathea, to the Celtic Church, and the, sto the story of the bringing the Grail to Britain. So that like gives a sort of both an important an association with an important relic and with uh, a sense of like you know quasi apostolic authority to the Celtic yeah. Church. So it's part mm -hmm. of the identity of the Celtic Church. Um, and then in terms of the the two major strands of the Grail material, you have the Parsifal material. Um, in various forms, and in, and those are the original, right? And the Grail stories are not directly connected to Arthurian legend in the beginning; they become connected later. And then, of course, the 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 uh. then later on, you have Galahad is the other major strain of the Grail material, and Galahad is a knight of the Round Table. He's the son of Lancelot, so it becomes more intimately connected. Although Parsifal becomes connected to Arthurian legend quite early on, too. Even Edevin and von Eschenbach, he's sending the knights he defeats to Arthur's court. Right. Right, which is the representative of, of chivalry. And so Parsifal is a very different character from Galahad. Parsifal is a fool character. Mm. He's naive. He doesn't know anything. He's a country bumpkin. Very much. Right? Yeah. And his ability to be able to discover the grail is related directly to his naivete. Like that's his, his being a fool is what allows him to be a grail knight. His mother actually dresses him as a fool too, right? When he sets out. Yeah. He, she, he puts him in ridiculous looking clothing so people won't take him seriously to reinforce yeah, this. That's exactly, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And Galahad is, Galahad is the model of Christian chastity and perfect knighthood. He's boring. No. He is boring. My <laughs> to be God, honest with you, the, the Galahad <laughs> stuff is just boring. Like in the Grail King, it's just literally Jesus in some of the Galahad material. It's like mm -hmm. there's no, there's, there, it loses, it's just, it's too, it loses most of its deep sense of myth. Although I don't know, I mean, Corban still saw something good in some of the Galahad material um, in terms of it still being connected to like, what I would say is the deeper meaning of the grail, but of the two major strains of the grail legend, the Galahad material is less interesting to me. And me too. But and, and, I, and I have to know. Didn't he find the, the Galahad stuff so fascinating, right? You know, because you had adultery. Um, you had, you know, coming from Lancelot and so forth. You know, I don't right. know the primary material so much, but certainly in our time, Charles Williams' contribution was kind of fixated, you know, and his contribution to the theology of romantic love and all those envelopes he was pushing, even in his own life, we know from recent biographies, you know, he seemed to be just kind of like dialed in completely on Galahad. Yeah. By yeah. 
and so and that is so also and, and Malcolm Geit, who I love, like Galahad, is the focus of the of the of the uh, Arthurian poetry volume he's working on right now. Yeah, and I, I just have never had that. I get like Mark <laughs> Malcolm says that he identified with Galahad because he saw Galahad as being less of a jock than. Lancelot. No, he. I'm kidding. He's he's <laughs> Captain America. He's the captain of the football team, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. To me, it's like I don't see that, Malcolm. But God bless him. He's a great yeah, poet, and I love yeah, him. Yeah, but good for you. But I hope First it's all, I hope it's less boring than the actual story. <laughs> but but A. E. Waite was also a Galahad guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't get it. Well, maybe but, it has to do with the chivalry. Do you think? Like, because when I think of Galahad, I think of chivalry. Actually, but here's the thing, though. In terms of capturing the spirit of chivalry, von Eschenbach, who was actually a knight, by yeah. the way, and not a monk, like a lot of the other people who wrote this stuff definitely does the best job of capturing the actual mm. spirit of chivalry of any of the Absolutely. people who tell the story of the grail because it's a, it's a he process. knew it firsthand <laughs> well it's a process of becoming right and that's what i love about parkable is he starts off i mean i god i look i read the stuff he does and it's it's funny too god it's funny well my mother told me to say this right that's what he's you know, like god <laughs> Kid, <laughs> shut up about your mother already. They keep telling him, right? <laughs> All right. My mother said I could, should kiss a girl if I see her. And he kisses a girl and she's married. And so yeah, you yeah. don't do that. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's ruining and he's screwing everybody's life up on the way. Oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. He's not he's he is not a he is not a uh, a figure of uh, Christian chastity in the way that Galahad is. Well, and he's but he's not but he's also innocent. He doesn't mean it like rape, right? Yeah. And then right. That's there's it. This, and in both Creatine it makes the grail less about morality, which is precisely the point. And and he when like when he goes to my favorite scene, one of my favorites. There's so many great scenes in both Parth in uh Krechian and in Wolfram, but when he goes to King Arthur's court and the Red Knight steals the chalice and spills wine on the lap of the queen, I mean, tell me about that's not Freudian symbolism, right? <laughs> and uh, but then. <laughs> None of the knights want to go fight the guy, and Parsifal, oh, go get him. And he's kind of dumb. And he goes out there, and he doesn't know the rules of knighthood, so he just hurls a javelin and hits the guy right in the right between the visor, kills him. Right, dead. which is an unchivalrous way of. Yeah, you know him. that's not how you're. But he doesn't yeah. know you're not supposed to do things that way. Yeah. And then he can't figure out. How, he goes, "I want that armor," and he's trying <laughs> to get the armor off. He can't figure out how to get the armor off. He's dragging the guy all around the ground. He can't. He just can't figure it out. And some page has to come out and say. Dude, this is how you do it, okay? See these straps? We're going to do that. Okay, that's fun. And then he puts the armor on, but is he a knight? Because he's wearing armor, right? That's the whole, that's one of the... Right. Exactly. Michael Martin should be the radio voice of a uh, Parsifal, right? Just... <laughs> <laughs> but, but, he, but he develops in such a beautiful way. Right, right. And he's trying to do everything right, and just like all the rest of us, we try to do everything right, and then we end up doing everything wrong. Yes, he, he gets his yes. training from right. He gets the training from Gurnimans, who's an actual knight, yeah. and he tells him, "Well, knights don't ask too many questions." Okay, fine. He writes it. You know, if he could write, he would have written down, "Knights don't ask too many questions," <laughs> which and is what keeps him from asking the question. When exactly. He sees the procession. Because yeah. he doesn't know how to be spontaneous. Yep. You know, well, he did, but he didn't. It's kind of an interesting because uh, he has to be the right? fool that he is in order to be able to. Well, maybe his spontaneity it. taught him not to be spontaneous. Now, Sherry, I guarantee you, <sighs> you can speak to this. You have to already see in the, just from the outlines of what we've been talking about. Yeah. You can see how you know this story. I do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. 
That's what I was saying. It's like and when Nate when <laughs> Nate was talking about like how it uh, Galahad became or Parsifal is great because it's not all about morality. I was led to think of uh, we'll talk about Simone Weil huh. later. Jackie Lowell had a wonderful essay on again how during times of crisis and Michael kind of got into this too. Like the church just tries to exert control. But uh, Jacques Ellul has a wonderful essay, and I'm forgetting the title of it now, but it has to do with women. You know, is that when society does start to fall apart, the church does just, you know, sexual morality can get too far. And then the church comes down with a moral code, and oh. Jacques Ellul in this essay kind of understands that, but says whenever a moral code is imposed, women get hurt, right? Yep. And mm -hmm. it's this sense, too, that the unmappable, the flowing, the liquid, the fluid, you know, whenever we put that, we put a grid on that, we have the same story of like when the grail gets taken away, the divine feminine gets taken away. But again, moral codes are a stink bomb for the feminine impulse in the church. But, time but time at, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's true. But I think uh, I wouldn't say that it's not about morality. It's not about chastity, right? Well, no, because here's what I mean. Well, how about, about, I, it's about something code. deeper than morality. Yeah, It's about something deeper than reality. What it is, is about the identification with the suffering of another that's yeah. deeper than morality that's, that's a principle that is yeah. much deeper than than morality that's it's not a, it ceases well, to be about uh, law it ceases right. to be about Agreed. law and it Agreed. starts to become about inner transformation through identification with the suffering of another yeah. well isn't that which isn't is that more profoundly christian than the super christian exoterically modeled Galahad, who is designed to make sure that it doesn't run afoul of any of the official yeah. doctrines of the church. That's right. Galahad is why kids find church boring. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> really, it's just yes. oh man. Well, the thing here, this is kind of related. So I was reading through some of the stuff. So interesting though, and I don't know if you have this edition, Nate. It's the PM Matarasso version of the Kesta Sangral which in the first sentence I think is perfect. In his introduction, he says, the Kesta Sangral, despite its Arthurian setting, is not a romance. It is a spiritual fable. Yeah. Written by Cistercian monks, right? Yeah. And you can tell it's written by Cistercian monks because they don't let, they don't let the poor kid have a girlfriend or a <laughs> right. wife. Whereas right. Par Percival has a wife eventually. Yes. Right? And one of my, I don't know. One of my favorite scenes, Nate, and it's both. And he has to live. Well. And he has to live life. And he has to live life like a real a guy. A bunch of hard lessons before he's able to return to the Grail Castle and be able to ask the questions. Yeah, and don't you love that scene, Nate? Where uh, maybe I can read it. Do I have it marked in this one? Is this in Christian? I had it. I marked a bunch of stuff today. What do we got here? Uh, I don't know where I have it, but do what happens? Voices you're looking. Do you, do you, do you, do you, do you. Okay. <laughs> now there's a scene though. This is after he does know how to be a knight, and it's Pentecost, I think, around Pentecost, but it snows, and it's June, like June 10th or something, and it snows, and right before. Uh, Percival is going across this field, and right before he came across this field, a hawk was chasing a duck, and it clawed the duck, but it did not kill it. And but it it dripped some, or as a goose, dripped some blood on the snow. And as Percival's crossing the field, he sees it, and I love this scene. 
and it reminds him of the blush on his wife's face, mm-hmm. and he stands there mesmerized. It's also the it's also those cla- that classic fairy tale motif of the black, white, and red too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, That's, and I which love tells it. you how this which tells you how like deep in our consciousness the, the, this story really is. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's really tied to all of those like impossibly old, impossibly deep stories that, that I like. Like I said, Sherry, they come from the earth. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we and, just overhear them. Well, and I don't know if you probably you probably read it, Nate, but uh, Emma Young and Marie Louise von Franz wrote a commentary on on the Grail, or a, an, a Jungian kind of commentary on on the Grail saga. And one of the things they point out is that one thing that it does is it. It reunites the feminine with the Trinity. Uh, in symbolic, you know, psychologically, symbolically, it's it's a very Sophianic image that way, right? Mm-hmm. Because it it makes it really, and this anticipates Bulgakov anyway. It really makes uh, the Virgin the fourth member of the Holy Trinity. <laughs> you know, the the the, the I, I think that's a special, and this came out in my conversation with Martin Shaw because I think. Uh, I really think in von Eschenbach's version, the grail being a stone brought by the angels, like it, it gives you this association with the earth, which is the deepest sense of what you're talking about, I think. Is, yeah. Well, which, I, which brings us into Bulgakov's grail meditation. Which, which, also, which I just, I have, this is, uh, this is interesting. This is an interesting little, I'm going to see if I can hold this up to the camera and see if we can, if we can see it. But this is, this is my rosary. But do you see at the bottom of this particular rosary on the cross, there's a there's a chalice right at the oh, nice. bottom of the cross. Nice. So well done indeed. I just wanted I just wanted to make a point, um, you know, because you you keep referring to my knowledge as being earthly knowledge, which which it is. <laughs> it comes from the bottoms of my feet up to the top of my head. That's You're where a farmer, my... in case our listeners don't know. Yeah. 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 And and having listened to this Kathleen Rain yesterday and this morning and i probably will just do it as a meditation on a regular basis um she said at one point the alternative to nature as mechanism is nature as theophany and and this is what you just talked about nate when you said that that's how deep these stories are well they're that they're as deep as as the earth right so william blake she quotes william blake in that talk too it, it, and I loved this because he says the vision of infancy before epiphany is obscured by ideology. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what what we what we gather from the earth as as meaning and and knowledge is has to be gathered in a childlike state. Yep. Otherwise, it's lost to us. Because it has to pass through all this ideology, right? And 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 if you don't see it as a theophany, then it cannot speak to you either. So, um, could we say the church also could be theophany or mechanism, right? You know, and so I'll tie in at this point the Simone Fay, you know, attention on the right use of school yeah. studies towards the view of the love of God. That you know, and I don't know is that much about the Grail, but the whole idea. The way I cast it with students is, you know, a flipping of the Catholic mythos, which would be 
the sort of idea that you go to heaven or you die and you talk to St. Peter and he kind of goes through a list, you know, a moral mm -hmm. list of things to do this or that. Like Santa but, Claus, right? Amen, yeah. right? But instead of that, you know, the way, you know, I find that essay so evocative because you get a sense that like when we die and we're shown St. Peter or St. Bridget and they ask us like, what's the right question to ask to show that you're fully human, that you did this thing? And it gets into Nate's point about putting ourselves in the place of the sufferer um, as opposed to a religious mechanism that's very isolates us, right? We run this religious mechanism. So Simone Weil, you know, the question that has to be asked in order to bring life back to the land, the question is, what are you going through? So in other words, if once mm -hmm. in our life, and we all know Tomberg very well, that definition of sin as me real, you shadow comes alive here, that if for once in our life, I can quiet this Mike Sodderness and ask you, Sherry, what you're going through and not processing all of your experiences in terms of myself, but once in my life, I could ask you, what are you going through? That, you know, for all this talk about Jesus, the imagination and the mm -hmm. imagination in terms of uh, arts and the schools and so forth, the single most powerful definition of the imagination has always been and has to be in the future, the ability to put yourself into another person's place. Right. That if our, if our religious practice is working towards that realization, it's of Christ. If it's not, right. definitely of Antichrist. Right. You know, some yeah. of this stuff can be that. Well, that's what, what Tom Berg says is that intuition is the ability to become another. Like that's that's right. ultimately for Tom Berg what intuition is. Amen. Now, now I think I, I think that's a really brilliant point you brought up, Mike. And uh, and I think well, I mean, I'm going to compare this to another work of literature, actually of children's literature. Have you guys ever read The Bronze Bow? No, yeah. I've never heard I'm it. already intrigued. Uh, what's her name? Evelyn George Spear. Maybe that Evelyn's not the first name, but it's a beautiful story. It takes place in Palestine uh, during the time of Jesus. And there's this young boy who's a blacksmith named uh, Daniel. And he's really angry because he blames the Romans for the death of his parent, Romans for the death of his parents, and that his sister became mad. You know, she became uh, like a mute after their parents were killed or whatever happened to them can't remember exactly and he's angry he's just kids full of anger so he gets uh recruited by the zealots and then he hears from his friend who was his also his who was also a blacksmith who happens to be simon the zealot one of the, the apostles mm -hmm. and he's talking about this jesus guy he's like he's teaching me peace with the romans i hate the romans right and then he finally gets a chance to meet Jesus. And it's, I've read, remember reading this story and bringing tears to my eyes while I'm reading it to my children. And so he's, it's in Peter's house and they're all, they're like all these sick people out in the, in the courtyard, just waiting for Jesus to come out. And find, finally this boy's waiting here for hours and like one in the morning, Jesus comes out and he comes over to, to Daniel and talks to him. And Daniel says, well, I'm just angry because what happened to my sister and my, my parents? And I don't think it's right. And all Jesus says to him is, well, you're not far from the kingdom. Right? Mm. And I think that to me is a kind of grail moment because in, uh, not in the Caste de Saint-Graal with, with, with uh, Galahad, who, like that, remember that line from, uh, <laughs> from Amadeus, he could shit marble, right? <laughs> and uh, he just could. Yeah. But, but He's like, very unreal. But what happens? In, in, I think the the same people who like Galahad, their favorite superhero is Superman. 
Yeah, because he's got to, you know, what's he going to do? Yeah, he doesn't have to figure anything out. And I'm a, I'm a Batman <laughs> guy myself. Right, now, yeah. Now, because what happens, and it doesn't happen in Kray Chien because the book doesn't get finished. Mm-hmm. When he gets back, he doesn't go back the second time to ask the question. Uh, Unless you're Jonathan Pajot. Jonathan Pajot mm-hmm. thinks it is finished. No. <laughs> it's only finished, yeah. It was finished in heaven after he died, but okay, whatever. But uh, part, but in Volfram, it is finished. And the beautiful thing about it is when he says, Uncle, what is it that ails you? He doesn't get an answer. Right. The answer is the healing. Mm-hmm. That's right. The, so with the that, ask, w- the asking, the asking. That's the asking, I would phrase it too, both, yeah. but yeah. yeah. The healing yeah. is the asking that question. I'm going to share a screen right now. You can get liberated from the bondage of self by, you know, right. and that's, again, so the Did love. you say the answer is the question, Mike? The, uh, that, yeah. No. He doesn't say, well, he doesn't say my head hurts or anything. No. That says nothing. Now I'm going to show you the scene from a famous Hollywood film, which I love, which is actually called The Fisher King, which you might have seen. Oh, yes. And does anybody recognize what phase of the moon that is? This is like extra credit. That's a waxing gibbous. No. Oh, a waning crescent. It's waning, waning gibbous. Oh, man. Waning gibbous. But it's okay. I only had two more guesses. They were running out. It's either full moon or new moon. I don't know. Uh, no. So let's watch this short scene. Can you see it? I can. Yep. Nothing's moving at the moment. Yeah, but it's not, I mean, there, we there we go. You might have to pause, Michael. You'll have to click the little optimize for sound button in the sharing options, and then it'll play the audio. It's paused. Oh, it's not responding. Can you hear us, Michael? Well, I can hear you, but we're not hearing the audio. We're not hearing the audio. You need need to click the in the sharing options. There's a little button that says optimize for audio. You need to click that and then it'll put the audio. Okay, hold on a second. Looks like your VLC is also crashing. What's the VLC, Nate? That's a that's the video player he's using to play the clip. I'm gonna I'm gonna call you for tech help. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, hold on a second here. I'm going to drop the phrase VLC at a cocktail party. Uh. <laughs> I'm always checking up lingo that makes me sound smart. <laughs> oh, wait, hold on a second here. Well, while you're trying to figure out the technical difference, as long as we're going to talk about like Hollywood, you guys keep portray- talking. Hollywood portrayals related to grail material, um, I would say that at least Excal- Excalibur definitely gets the spirit of the character Percival, right? John Borman's Excalibur? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's very, he's not, you know, he's not a, he's not the picture of perfect knight, knight, knighthood at all. Yeah. I just film. have to say while we're waiting um, that I have a, a weathered um, ram, which means he's been castrated. And his name is Galahad. <laughs> anyway, well, I tried that. So what were you telling me I had to do, Nate? Oh, say, so when you go to share it, there's a little checkbox that says optimize for uh, video. Okay. If you check that, then it will play back. Oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Make sure you do that. Okay, let's try this again. Try it. Can you hear? Charles, what yeah. a beautiful night, Jack. Hey, it's going to to go now. Running around here during the day is one thing, but at night we could be killed by a wide variety of people. That's stupid, Jack. Well, this park is mine just as much as it is theirs. Do you think it's fair that they can keep us out? Because it's just to make us think that we might get killed or something? Yes, I think it's very fair. Well, I don't. What are you doing? I'm cloud busting. Uh-oh. You ever done it? You lie on your back, and you concentrate on the clouds, and you break them apart with your mind. It's you wild. Can't. No, but you have to be nude, though, Jack. You can't Because you can't diffuse this. the psychic energy. This is New York. No one's allowed to be naked in the field of New York. It's too Midwestern. Oh, come, come on, on, Jack. It's wild. It's, it's really freeing. What? I mean, the air on your body, your nipples are hard. <laughs> Look, guys, dare you in the wind. <laughs> hey, come on. Oh, come on, Jack. What You're are you pissing saying? me no. off. Hey. And we're bare-ass naked hey. in the middle of it. I'm not yes. doing this. This is nuts. I'm oh, leaving. Jack, I need it. Free yourself. Free yourself. I'm you know leaving. why dogs do this? Yo, because it's fair. <laughs> Jack. I'm not doing that. Oh. Yes. Yo. Come on, Jack. Get back to your roots. Oh, 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 oh. man on. talks to invisible people. He sees invisible horses. And he's lying naked in the middle of Central Park. I should be surprised. That's stupid, Jack. Uh-oh. I mean, this park is mine just as much as it is theirs. I mean, do you think it's fair that they can uh -oh. keep us out? Because it's just to make us think that we might get killed or something? Yes, I think it's very fair. Well, I don't. What are you doing? I'm cloud busting, Jack. Uh-oh. Can other people hear? Well, it, it's messed up. I don't know what's going on here. Okay. So anyway. Well we did get a we, we we did we we did get a nice portrayal of the fool. Yeah. In the best possible sense. Yeah, the the program's messed up, so I'm just going to close it. Oh, yeah, that's wow. what happened. I I haven't used this feature in a long time. But anyway, what happens is uh the reason Robin Williams' character is insane is he was a professor of literature whose wife is murdered, mm. which triggers his insanity. And his his dissertation was on the grail. And so he thinks he's this grail knight, sleeps in this basement of this, ho of this uh, apartment building, um, and he has a, a kind of altar to the divine feminine right there. And what he tells the story to, to uh, Jeff Bridges' character here is that he says, you know, and he tell it's not the traditional grail story. But it's about this fool who comes and sees this man suffering, who had been, and, and it's based on the, the wounded king in, uh, the in the Galahad quest. Mm. But the but it, but he instead of that he brings in a, this fool, who. You know he he says, "What's the matter with you?" And the king says, well, "I'm thirsty. I need something to drink." And the fool just grabs there's a cup over there. Here go here you go here's a cup. And, and that it's the Holy Grail. And what's beautiful in, in the way they, they tell the story is that, um, and through the whole, the whole film, you don't, then you start to realize who's really the, the Fisher King here? Is it Robin Williams who's insane or is it, Je or, uh, is it Jeff Bridges' character who's broken because he feels guilty because he was actually a shock jock and the guy who killed, uh, the Robin's character's wife 
was inspired by the shock jocks radio show and so he feels guilty and he's he doesn't autumn he says this is a place that you just pay the fine and move on and then he realizes he has to go and get the holy grail <laughs> for for this friend and and it's beautiful because and i think it, it shows uh what, what this film does more than any other uh treatment of the grail is it shows that we are all both the wounded king and the fool right that's exactly right yeah yes and that's right. it's extraordinary. I think, you know, uh, the, the older I get, I identify more and more with the wounded king, you know, with the Fisher King. It and, can also, we can also trace the trajectory of Jeff Bridges from that role to some weird Up Your Antibodies commercial that I've seen on TV recently. Has anybody oh. seen it? It's really odd what he's doing. It's kind oh, of really? Uh, <laughs> it's strange. I, 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 love, I love him. That's too bad. Me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah me too. Plus, yeah, he, yeah, I don't know, but, but anyway, how about how about this theme again for people who know the Grail more? You know, I'm not going to make a case for Galahad, who you guys' favorite whipping boy. <laughs> but again, is it true? So I don't even know. But you know, I was reading again on Charles Williams. You know that um, this author wants to say, you know, Williams was attracted to the Grail legends, um, and part of it has to do uh, to be the complexity of the begetting of the High Prince Galahad by Sir Lancelot on the Grail Princess Elaine, you know, which was not, you know, that, and if he, if Williams was, so I guess my segue is to say a lot of people, I'm thinking young people, you know, they're interested in these hints in Western civilization, whether it's the Rougemont and so forth, love in the Western world. Oh, God. I know, Sorry. I know, it's not our thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, this, this notion, can people turn to the Grail quest and get a lot of insights into the truths and falsehoods of romantic love, right? It seems to me as somebody two steps removed from where Nate and Michael are, that the Grail, you know, some people would hope it has something to do with this, you know, this great loneliness um, that invades the world. Certainly Charles Williams was mining whether he was right or wrong. That was his- Well, I think when Charles Williams, it's like, I think Charles Williams understands what the deeper, what the deeper sense of our romantic love is though, right? Mm -hmm. Like he also- He does. Wrote the, he, he wrote the figure of Beatrice. Right. Is, and and yeah. he understands that like romantic love in its best guise, it points us toward God's erotic longing for us. Exactly. Now, another thing, now, one thing we have not spoken of, and I think it, for, I think it's important for our cultural moment, is uh, Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. Because in Mallory, who came about a hundred years later, maybe even one hundred and fifty, after because the last one of them, all, all the ones we've mentioned was the the Quest de Saint Graal was the thirteenth century, early thirteenth yeah. century. The yeah, rest were in Mallory's the, Mallory's fourteen fifty seven, I think. Yeah, so he's. It's he's quite a, late. He's 150 years later. About. Yeah, he's a veteran. But with he, him, and he was another knight, right? He was a knight. Yeah, he was a knight. knight. He was a veteran of the Wards of the Roses. Yeah. So. But, and he was also, he also wrote the Mort in prison. Yep. Uh, but the, the interesting thing to me <clears throat> in, that, in that treatment, even though I, I think, I'm guessing that the, the Parsifal stream was not known to him. Because he, he has Galahad. He uses Galahad, and he has, right. you know, the three virgin knights. Gal and Percival is another virgin. I mean, what is with these yeah. people with virgins, right? It's, uh, yeah, I think it, it's, uh, it's Boars, uh, Boars, Percival, Boars, and Galahad, and Percival in yep. Mallory. But yeah. what, what happened was with Mallory is the, there's, a, there's a sense of melancholia 
that permeates the entire text. And he, but he includes the Guinevere and Lancelot thing. He includes Tristan and Isolde, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's he's got both kind of troubadour love thing going on, which ends tragically, Romeo and Juliet type of thing. And but it's also the 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 falling apart of all things at yeah. the end, you know, where the battle, uh, you know, it's Arthur versus Lancelot, and Lancelot can't bring himself to fight. And then it's Mordred and all, you know, and all the, the, the sins of, of Arthur, even though they are unintentional, come back to haunt him because he has an illegitimate child by his sister, mm -hmm. Mordred. Yeah. And Galahad is an illegitimate child of Lancelot by uh, Elaine. Yeah. Right? So, and it's just, it, it's such a devastating, and I think it's, it, it's, um, kind of watching the the collapse of a of a culture of a civilization i think we're at one of those moments right ourselves yeah. and right. i think to me that the the mallory in a way speaks directly to what we're going through now and with mallory though there's there's kind of it ends with the you know the once in the future king rex quantum rex, rex quay futurum you know so did he, you know, and Arthur goes to Avalon, which I think is a beautiful image, right? Will he return, right? And what, and who's, who's at Avalon? And, women, right? right? It's an island of women. And women who he, 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 he's supposed to have an adversarial relationship, one would His think. Sister, so it's, yeah. Exactly. So that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and I, and so I like these stories and I like, well, I don't like the, the Castle Sound Graal so much, but what I like about them is they're kind of open-ended. Yes. Right? You don't know where it's, it doesn't resolve. There's not a tidy ending other than the, the healing of the Fisher King. It just kind of, and then it just kind of moves on, right? And, uh, and so as far as what young people could learn from this, right? That, and I think, you know, you see, you saw this with the Kennedys. We haven't mentioned Camelot, right? They called the, the, the presidency of John F. Kennedy Camelot, because it was like that moment in history. And of course, what was the, the big Broadway play at the time of the Kennedys was Camelot, which is a kind of a musical retelling of the Mort, the Arthur. And, and it's, I mean, it's, I just, I mean, so identify, I don't know if identifies the right word. Yes, identifies the right word with, with Lancelot in that trajectory, because, you know, he starts off as, you know, the guy, but he knows he's not that good, even though he doesn't right. really, he hasn't really done anything. Right. He knows he's not good. And there's a beautiful moment in there where this knight, Sir Yuri, is injured, Hungarian knight. And Arthur says, I want my knights to pray over him and see if he will heal. And they all pray over him. Nothing happens. And they're like, okay, Lancelot, your turn. He's like, I can't do it. <laughs> you have no idea how bad I am. And he does it, and the guy comes to life, which they depict actually beautifully in the film Camelot. Yep, and yep, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. A different, it's a different night, but the same scene. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. have uh, in Camelot. It is Sagramore or Agravain. I can't remember. It's one of more. It's one of well. Okay, I don't think in Camelot they tell you that they're Mordred's brothers, but it's one of Mordred's brothers. Gawain, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, it's it's it, it's a, and I think that the matter of Britain in this case, 
I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think the Mort Arthur has things to offer young people or anybody as a way to think through our times. You know, watching the the, the imp disintegration of a culture, especially for well, Christians. and also the Grail the Grail story as in its connection to our the Arthurian legend. So the like the entire thing, it's going to tell you two things. It's going to tell you that any exoteric kingdom, even if it be a golden age kingdom like Camelot, is going to fall into ruins. Mm -hmm. But the Grail represents a greater kingdom. Yeah. And the Grail castle is nowhere for a reason, mm -hmm. right? It's only found by it's only found by those who are worthy to find it. Like so. Yeah. Even, you, so even like before you even achieve the Grail, it's like even being able to even find in the Grail castle is like a rare deed because yeah. you have to you have to have eyes to see it yeah so is that, it, is that because it's a theophany like i read read in the quotes earlier no uh, you know i think joseph campbell of all people has a really beautiful insight into this where he says that and we could talk about the, al the alchemical colors that happen throughout the book but what campbell says is that what's important about this quest you know the hero quest in the grail instance is that to find the castle you can't use a path that anybody else used. You have to right. strike your own path through the forest, right? That's right. Through the, so you have to enter, Young might say, the unconscious or the wilderness, right? The wildness. And mm -hmm. that's what happens with Percival. And then it's not until after he uh, blows it by not asking the question, even though he wanted to ask the question, he finally, then he finds out not only what he did wrong, but he finds out his own name. He didn't know who what his name was, right? And he has to be told by his cousins. Which is why I've always wanted to connect the Grail, and I don't know if I can give you a very clear explanation of this. I've always wanted to connect the idea of finding the Grail to the Whitestone name in Revelation. Like, mm -hmm. this is something that cannot come to you through the exoteric forms. It's pointing at something deeper than that. Yeah, and I think that's a fun, and I talked to college students, so this is like, you know, about um, this kind of fundamental philosophical ontological question, who are you really? Who are you? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And never see, you ever see the movie? Uh, that's Pater right there. The last, the last, <laughs> you ever see The Last Temptation of Christ? Mm -hmm. I no, love that I've movie. Seen, I've seen clips from it, but I haven't It's so seen beautiful. It. One of my favorite movies. But there's this point, now, one of the things, I mean, Theologically, I don't like the way they depict the, the Virgin Mary too much. Um, but there's this moment where she's worried, son, come home with me. You know, this is, this is crazy and people are upset. And he turns to her and said, who are you? I mean, really, who are you? I'm your mother, but who are you really? You know, and that's the question. And then she's upset. And then she turns to this woman and she's crying. And, and the woman said, Mary, didn't you see them? See what? All the angels, all the blue wings behind him. I swear there were thousands, right? And I mean, because he asked the question, who are you? Right. And, and I tell the students, I mean, I think you see kids struggling this right right now with all, all the trans stuff that's going on. That says, I don't know who I am, mm. right? I'm, tr I'm trying to find out who, I we all do. I mean, that's what Percival is trying to do. He's trying to find out who he is. He doesn't know it at first. But then eventually he goes, well, oh, my name is Percival, huh? <laughs> I should find out more about myself. And then he finds his way on Good Friday to 
to a, a hermit where he tells him the, the, the mystery of Christianity. He didn't even know about that. And right. then after that, he's allowed a, another whack at asking the question. And, and I loved, in, we haven't mentioned in, in a Wolfram, his brother, Fearfies, who's, <laughs> who's half uh, African yeah. probably, and, right. th and his face and is modeled black and white. And he's a Muslim. And right. I love this, I love he's, Fearfies. He's, there's a lot of chivalrous Muslims <laughs> in, in Wolfram. Oh yeah, actually. Yeah. And, but I love what uh, was it? Who is it? He falls in love with Kondrimars, <laughs> and when the Grail at the after the Fisher King is healed, or at the moment when he's healed, Fairface is there, and he can't see the Grail. He's like, I don't. What are you guys looking at? And he finds out that unless someone's baptized, it will never see the Grail. And he's not interested in theology. He goes, Well, can she see the Grail? Yeah, she can see the girl. Okay, whatever she can see, I want whatever she's seeing. So baptize me right now. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. The other, another, uh, you know, we haven't talked about it. We, we've talked about the, the 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 divine feminine and the the feminine associations with the grail. But the one interesting feature of Wolfram's particular version that we haven't talked about is this this strange chthonic character of Kundru. Oh yeah, who shows up in the first in the first place to tell Percival off but then ultimately she's the one who sets him back on the path toward finding the grail as yeah she's and a very mysterious same, figure yeah yeah and she's like she has this animalistic sort of appearance and she's you know she has like attributes that you would kind of associate almost with the hag yeah kind mm -hmm. of characters like almost like baba yaga like mm-hmm so she's like has like this like association with these like chthonic feminine earth spirits. Yes, and she's and semi animalistic. With the, yeah, and she's associated with the Grail at the same time. Yeah, you know, and, and now have you ever seen this film? Not many people have. It's a, a 1982 film treatment of uh, Wagner's opera Parsifal by Hans, uh, what's his name, von Cyberberg. And oh my God, it's it's amazing psychologically. I mean, it's kind of a catharsis of the Nazi reign of terror still, because he's a German filmmaker. Twenty, you know, twenty or forty years later, making this film that gets into the German folk soul. And this is in Parsifal by Wagner. If you don't know, is the is the opera that made uh, Nietzsche go, "Okay, I'm done with Wagner." And he thought Wagner was his man, and he's like, he's writing this Christian crap. I'm done. Yeah, right? pretty much. And uh, but it's beautiful. And in this film version, talk about heavy. The first half of the film, maybe two thirds, Parsifal is played by a boy, probably fourteen or fifteen years old. Now, they're not professional actors, and they're lip syncing to actual opera singers. But half or half or whatever, however, two thirds of the way through, the role is handed over from this boy to a woman. Who plays Parsifal, but plays? It is interesting, and it's it's like you're like, wow, what the hell is going on? <laughs> it's this kind of, where am I? But it's beautiful because I mean, it's, it's drawing on Jung. Well, for it sure, recent, right? Well, yeah. Well, and no, well, it's also it's also Christian too. Yeah. Because it's pointing toward how the soul is feminine toward God. Because that's uh, right. That's, I mean, the mystical union with the divine is what the Grail story is about. I said it's, I didn't want to say that right off of the beginning of the, of the conversation, but folks, that's what the Grail is about, and that's why my channel is called Grail Country. 
Thanks for thank you for finally answering my question. <laughs> I knew I'd get an answer eventually. But yeah, that that, and that that integration of the of the self, right, is is it's a beautiful, beautiful moment, and that's what happens to to, to Percival in the actual text. Yeah. It becomes a real person. That's why I think both of us can't stand. And it's not. Galahad. And it's not a morality tale. <laughs> you know, he's not. He doesn't have all the perfect virtues and perfect chastity that. that and that's that, so that weird. Does. I mean, that chastity. In, oh, I'm going to read you this because it makes me sick to my stomach. But. Uh, this is in the Castel San Grau. And, and, and the siege perilous is just a dumb concept. It is. And here we go. This is Josephus comes to him, who's the son of Joseph of Arimathea. Listen then, he said, that I am Josephus, son of Joseph of Arimathea, whom our Lord has sent you for a companion. And do you know why he has sent me rather than another? Because you have resembled me in two particulars, in that you have contemplated the mysteries of the Holy Grail, okay, as I did too, and in that you are a virgin like myself. Wherefore, it is most fitting that I should keep my fellow company. Because boring. Written by a priest. I mean, you can you better believe that Cistercian monks are going to write a book like this. But we can still find. I'm just curious. Do we know that it was Cistercian monks who wrote it, or it's yes, we do. Okay, cool. But we can still see. Like, here's the thing, though. Even in the bad versions like that, and the Ga Galahad versions that I've been trashing on, <laughs> the entire conversation. That's right. The, the what the, the story is still what I'm talking about. Especially if you understand what the symbolism of virginity actually is, and you stop thinking about it in terms of just chastity uh, intact sexuality. Yeah. If you think about what Tomberg says about chastity and virginity, and you're thinking in those along those lines, then all of a sudden you'd be like, "Oh, this still works quite well." In but fact. unfortunately, that's not how most people think about it, right? And that's and that's unfortunate. You well, know, we have to make virginity great again. <laughs> well, uh, well, and this is well. We we've talked before about Jakob Burma, right? And for him, virginity is not a biological state; it's right. a spiritual state. And Tomberg right? is the same in, in yeah. that regard. It's spiritual state, right? This is this idea of chastity and a psychological and, state. Yeah. And 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 I personally think it's most interesting when you think that. Christ is born of a virgin, right? So, um, and I've tied this into the book of Job because I got caught up in the book of Job for a long time. And this integrity that Job displays that he hangs on to for so long. And it's the thing that God sees um, as righteousness in Job, right? And right. and so it feels to me like that that this I, I'm gonna I am gonna make virginity great again right right now okay so well, be prepared. A, I'm glad you used the word <laughs> because, integrity because well, be, integrity means virginal. That's right. Yeah. It's the same thing, and also and it's whole. This, it is out of this that Christ is born in you. You see, Christ is always born of a virgin. He has to be. You know so. So yeah, it's it's really important. And so when you were, I don't know the story of Galahad that well, but when you were talking about it, um, I was I just kept thinking of that, you know, that 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 would be to me what Galahad represents is Christ being born of a virgin, right? Um, being born in him, 
uh, and out of that virginal integrity that he carries with him. Yeah, that's the deeper meaning of virginity, mm-hmm. for sure. It's the only, it, yeah, it's the true, um, you know, spiritual. And it, it's, it's just so unfortunate through, that's through so much church history that it was interpreted biologically. Right. In fact, as I, is it today? I think it's today is the Feast of St. Cecilia. And really? I, was, I was, you know, the patron saint of poets and musicians. Hello, right? <laughs> so, uh, and I was, and actually I was baptized at the Church of St. Cecilia in Detroit, Michigan. Okay. A, a long ass time ago, and uh, so I was looking up the legend because I had been I hadn't read it in a long time. I was going to read it to my kids at house church the other day, but I said, "Nope." She, she gets married and she refuses to have sex. She re- refuses to consummate the marriage, and which is I'm like, "Come on, this is like." Even though her husband at first is a pagan, and then he says he'll get he'll get baptized, but then we still won't consummate our marriage which as we know at least in catholic tradition i don't know what the anglican is well i'm the one of the orthodox is too an unconsummated marriage is not a marriage right right who makes these rules mm-hmm. right is there a danger though in any of this so I, I agree with everything that's been said but when we keep on talking about the inner meaning the inner meeting isn't that another way of kind of rejecting the body you know that the language of like this implies this and it's all interior this implies this that can you know well i you think know, it i think yeah. there is an inner meeting mike but yeah. I, the problem is is people can't can't read in a holographic way that they get stuck on lit- literalism or legalism mm. which which disallows um, having that multivalent could we could we agree this maybe not people but like you know it's when I, I go back to when Sherry was saying, you know, whether it's a machine or a theophany, the machine that was running at that time that had taken away the cup, you know, that this was a power issue, you know, that then I'm a little more comfortable with it than maybe just the language that, you know, most people can't handle the inner meaning. Because then you know, we've talked, Nate, on our show so many times about Gnosticism, that this kind of way it's used in political parlance really doesn't go back to what it was. You know, David Bentley Hart was articulate on this. Arthur Versluis, but there is there is a danger of a gnosis in this way that I do think is reprehensible. That you know certain elites kind of get the inside meaning. That if we just know that this is the inside meaning, we can lord it over others. You know, and that's where Vogelin and Hans Jonas were 100 percent right. Yeah, you know? that's not where I'm coming from at all. No, uh, which is why which is why I opened the very first thing I said is that like this is something that that if you have if you're listening, you can overhear from the earth. Yeah, it's like it's, it's accessible to that. it's accessible to everyone. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I well, think what well, I'd like that's, to say, sorry, I mean, well, just just to say that in one of the many meanings of the of the whole mystery of Christ is making the hidden manifest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the one of the things I've been thinking I, about I, while you've been talking about these things is um, is that Job. In in the book of Job, he gets he gets glimpses of of let's call it the deeper meaning, right? Through nature. So for example, he sees a stump with a with a shoot growing out of it. And it's it and he's never thought about it before until he's in the midst of all his suffering and he's seeking answers from God. And he looks at the stump and he says, wait a minute, maybe 
I can get, maybe I can get a second chance like that shoot, right? And what I find so fascinating about that example is that, is that we've all seen a shoot growing out of a dead tree, a seemingly dead tree. And, and, and it may not mean anything to us until we need it to mean something to us, right? And then we can gather that deeper meaning from it. And so when I talk about virginity in this way, um, I think that I actually, for years, have held back on talking explicitly about a lot of things because I didn't feel like all I could ever say to people was I never felt like I had permission to say them out loud. Mm-hmm. But now it feels like now is t- it's time to talk about this, to, to point out that that this not only means that Christ was born of a virgin, but it also means that Christ is always born of a virgin. So what does that mean? And, right? and I and this is and I for me, and I think this is another thing that happens, is you know, like we talk monks will interpret the world according to monks stuff, right? So obviously if he's a if he's a celibate virgin who's never touched a girl, he must be better than everybody else. Which is insane, right? Um, on the other hand, um, there is the temptation, and I've br- run into a gazillion of these guys through the course of my life, who the esotericists who have the real secret of the Holy Grail. Oh my God, my God, give me a break, right? And they also display an inability to think in a multivalent or poetic way. Oh, 100%. And I think, and I think, people it's going and, I, and, this, and then I think Charles Williams, as much as I like Charles Williams and A.E. Waite, they came out of that initiation, you know, that mm-hmm. ritual initiation mindset because the higher up you climb, the more secrets you get, right? Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, and if you've ever met those people who got all the secrets, they're not too smart usually. And um, they're boring. And but they're boring, and they're also egomaniacs. They're megalomaniacs yeah, half yeah, the time. Right. A- yeah. And now I'm not saying either Charles Williams or A.E. Waite were like that, but I know they knew a lot of people who were. Alistair Crowley, right? Um, but I think the – and this is, you know – now I investigated many of those paths long ago, and too, yeah. and discovered no, you know, you I know, just think Christ hung out with the people. Now the thing is, uh-huh. um, I peop- we don't give people enough credit to to handle slightly complex ideas. No, I, I agree. Or to think that. in metaphor, right? Yes, yeah. But they can. But they can because you know what? The reason I know they can is because it's sitting out there waiting for them to discover. Yeah. But he's growing out of the trunk. But here's the thing. How do they do it? Do they do it by like being the sage who think he had he has discovered esoteric knowledge in the sense of occult and hidden and secret and known only to a few? Or is it by becoming like the fool? Which was a fool for a reason. Yeah, it's that child. It's that's why that's why the kingdom of God is for the one who can enter like a child. Mm-hmm. Like, but we also right. have to be on a quest. Bingo. <clears throat> exactly right. Well, what's it come? I think in, in the lesson of Percival for me is that it comes about through actually living your life and following what what things happen to you. Like when he meets the the knights in the woods as a kid, and he, are you angels? You must yeah, be you're God. Just, yeah. You're pretty. Can I have one of those? Right? I want to be a knight too. Right? Uh-huh. 
Jeez, this kid's so Which dumb. is the last thing his mother wants him to be. Because and she was hiding him because his father was was a knight who was killed. Yeah. So she's like, and I think it's a, I mean, there's so many deep things in this story. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful uh, commentary on mothering and parenting. I'm going to hide my children from, from the world. Oh, yeah. The world will find them. Don't worry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they'll find the world. And then <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, this is what my mother said. Right. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, but I think, you know, and th- that I think there's, that's a profound human truth. Oh, you yeah. have to you have to figure out how to live authentically. Yes. And, and then yeah, he, he, and he, the and he doesn't do I mean, he doesn't he listens to his mom's advice. It's worthless. It gets him into trouble. He listens to Gurneman's advice. It's worthless. It gets him into trouble. It's only when he learned. Well, maybe part of the thing is when he's baptized, finally. He can is finally is that come a to himself. Up? Being baptized, I, is I that think like, it for for him it is because yeah. it gives gives him a context. I think. I think. Like we talked about this in our last meditation on the tarot, taking someone's advice or giving advice, right? And I said, it's been my experience that when you get when you tell someone what to do, it they can't do it because they you know they have to discover it on their own, right? They have to. I wonder. I think it's not necessarily as simple as a both and, but like I'm thinking of that Tom Berg essay on that Russian esotericism, and other essays. You know, but the sacrament of seeking counsel with others, as opposed to. So I'm worried when we were talking about young people. You know, and again, it's 27 years in campus ministry. Right now, young people are listening to a lot of podcasts, and they're really proud of their knowledge to say like, "Oh, the tree, this tree, it's this tree," and they're pointing to every mythology, every religion, the tree, and they're accumulating this stuff. But they have the social skills of a Cretan, right? You know, that a lot of the, uh, in our culture, this kind of esoteric knowledge is coming in, and I'm seeing that it's it's actually hurting a lot of young people's abilities to have mm. normal conversation. Yeah. yeah, but let's think about- Go on autopilot and just say, this equals this equals this equals this. And again, I think you're right. We have Thank to- Thank you, Peugeot. Right, sorry. <laughs> and, well, I think it's part of it. I really do. I don't know if I can lay the blame there, but all I can say is reporting Jordan from the Peterson, front, yeah. We have this kind of new autistic way of talking where everybody's got all the symbolism. They have it all figured out, but they don't know how to talk with friends or make friends, and they're very lonely. But I, I right. think that's a, that's, I think that's a normal part like, of being in your 20s. But, right? but we need to recover the proper sense of esoteric, though. I mean, I understand, like, and this is, like, this is esoteric in the sense, in your conversation with David Bentley Hart, this was the sense that David Bentley Hart was talking about esotericism when he said he hates esotericists. And I, I understand exactly where he's coming from. But but properly, really, ultimately, all that it means to be esoteric is to look at the inside. Yeah. As opposed to exoteric, which is to look to the outside. Yeah. I mean, and I, we I, can't I, ignore esotericism in that sense. Like, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> or we'll get nowhere. But the, but, but the problem with the term is that, as Mike mentioned, it becomes the province of the few, right? Right. And, yeah, and it becomes well. Look what I know. Did but then it's know not esoteric the... anymore, is it? Because no. then you're telling me about it's it. Bullshit. Isn't Exoterically. But but, <laughs> but but I think, and this is why the subtitle of the submerged reality is the sociology and the turn to a poetic metaphysics, because I think that looking at it that way kind of diffuses that kind of hierarchical insider outsider thing, and and gives it back to the people, you know, in a way, at least it can. I mean, I mean, well, for anybody, right? 
you know, and I think this is normal for, for, for kids in the intellectual soul, right, in their 20s. You know, they, they get the system, and I'm figuring out the system, and this means this, and this means that. Oh, God, right? But they don't know how, this is like uh, in music, for instance, that's like learning how to play scales and learning key signatures and all, this, all that stuff. So you, but eventually, you have to learn how to jam. Right. Can I say something in favor of the Protestants in connection to this momentarily? This is actually one of the I think the good things on the Protestant insistence on rooting everything in Scripture, because when you're because <coughs> Scripture does not speak the language of theology directly, mm -hmm. right? There's no there's no theological. You're not find you're not going to find any theological language in Scripture. Script, scripture is contains poetry. It contains parable. It contains narrative. And all these things that are really, really much better for your mind than trying to cling on to abstract structures of dogma. So that's kind of like, yeah. you know, so reading the scriptures is better than reading the catechism is basically. Agreed, 100%. The, um, <laughs> and I'm going to rephrase something and I've kind of been, and you've been gracious, you know, I'm trying to angling at this, is that looking if, and I don't want to condense it to this, let's say some part of the mystery of the grail is this great mystery of putting yourself into another person's place, you know, being able to ask the question, what are you going through? We have with the ubiquitous nature of online, uh, things like this, podcasts and so forth, you know, what we really need for young people to do is to learn how to make friends. <laughs> this, is, this is a greater step towards that profound mystery than in one sense, and again, we are, we're all kind of like angling towards the same thing than any esoteric knowledge. It's almost decidedly unesoteric. But to have a friend and to say, my heart is more real over there, or to truly fall in love, you know, college students know I'm always distinguishing between this kind of uh, two sparrows in a hurricane love that an anxious world like ours is producing. Two lonely people just trying to hold on for dear life because the whole outside world is a cold, heartless place, which is a parody of real love. But I think, you know, when we're looking at the grail, we also need to balance it with just this almost the most the most esoteric is I mean, the most exoteric to me is now the most esoteric, like learning how to make a friend. You know, we might say that that question, everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten is a great work of esotericism now, you know, because it means like to get along with other people. Well, and I think, Mike, what Cher was saying earlier about the, that wonderful lecture by Kathleen Rain. Mm -hmm. which almost sounds like a paraphrase of Thomas Traherne, be, you know, how to become a child again. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting for me, you know, I have, I have six sons and three daughters. And when they're little, it's interesting because kids can make friends very easily. When they get to be about seventh or eighth grade, girls have a hard time making friends. Mm -hmm. But boys never have a problem. All they need is a stick and a rock, and they can have a group of friends, right? I think it's changing in our time, though. You know, the, again, at the college, like these, everybody's interfacing. They're not having conversations. Well, no, but this is when you're getting older, right? Then, right. then they get bred out of them, and this yeah. is what happens. And so, yeah. if I look at my my two sons who are 14 and 12, they can just meet other boys and be ha having a game and doing all this stuff. And I'll say, "Those are nice boys. What are their names? I don't know. They're my friends, though, right?" <laughs> but when you get to college or high school, I think high school is what destroys it. And then college, um, people become guarded. And I think we have the added uh, problems of social media and people being afraid to get outed right, on right, social right. media or whatever. Um, and, but I think you're right, though, Mike. It's And it's not just making friends. It's, it, 
fellowship. Yeah. Don't you think too, though? Uh, like I don't know. I'm I'm totally out of the loop when it comes to you know being that age and being involved with people that age. But don't you think that it seems to me like cancel culture would have a lot to do with this? Because if people are afraid to speak their mind, to say whatever is on their heart, a hundred percent. How can you make a friend? Right. right? Like, and, and I I do have to say, transparent. I've I have in the last year noticed a change in college students. Yeah. For the I bet for the last decade, and it got worse at the beginning of COVID. Students spoke were speaking less and less. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I, so couldn't, I usually when when I started teaching college, I could go in. Okay, so what do you think about T. S. Eliot? And they right getting this conversation right away. Then for about a decade, I would do that, and they're like, yeah. "What well, you didn't read it?" And only after the worst part of COVID. After the masks came off where I've been teaching, all of a sudden, and they want to talk, you know, and they don't feel they, I, and I asked the students, I said, what do you think happened? And they said, I think COVID taught us that we only live once. And what are you, why are you waiting to live? One of them said to me. I hope so. So that was a good, I thought that was, if, if anything good comes from that, I hope that's what it is. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I just think we're having we're seeing a prevalence, and that's kind of like that's kind of the that's kind of the moral Wolf, uh, Wolfram's version of the girl story too. Mm -hmm. Person wants to go out and go out and live his life, and in the process of li living his life, he learns how to become a friend mm -hmm. by being able to friend. ask the question, which gives him the the intuition that allows you to become another, who you already are. There you go. There you go. Good. Yeah. Okay. So to end, where am I, where'd it go? It's right here. It's in my head. <laughs> so let's read the end or, or the healing of Amphitus right here. So here's, this is Amphitus speaking to Parsifal at the, I'm at the second, all these names at the second appearance. That's the uh, Grail King, by the way. Amphitus is, is, he's the, yeah, the Fisher King. I have suffered torments of expectation, wondering if you were ever going to restore me to happiness. Now the last time you left me in such a way that if yours is a kind and helpful nature, you will show remorse for it. If you are a man of reputation and honor, ask the knights and maidens here to let me die and so end my agony. If you are Parsifal, keep me from seeing the grail for seven nights and eight days, and then all my sorrows will be over. I mean, gosh, talk about assisted suicide. <laughs> I dare not prompt you otherwise. Happy you if people were to, to, to say you succored me. Your companion here is a stranger. I am not content that he should stand in my presence. Why do you not let me let him go and take his ease? Parsifal wept. Tell me where the grail is, he said. If the goodness of God triumphs in me, this company here shall witness it. Thrice did he genuflect in its direction to the glory of the Trinity, praying that the, the affliction of this man of sorrows be taken from him. Then rising to his full height, he added, Dear uncle, what ails you? Hmm. And I better stop. I'm, I'm going to start crying. But I can no. see that. <laughs> I'm going to go. No, Before we sign off, you guys, I, I told you I had two Grail Cups, remember? Yeah, what so these. There you go. There you go. My husband made. Whoa. Oh, those are lovely. Right? Um, these are our wedding chalices. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he carved the molds for them and uh, and then poured and glazed them. Beautiful. And how long have you been married? 36 years. 36 years. Congratulations. 
Yeah. That can't be possible. Well, <laughs> I guess it can. Yeah. And, the, and, 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 you know, when you drink from these, you find out who you are, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> the two of cups, right? Yeah. yeah. This yeah. is great. You're, 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 you're Canadian, so you probably have a little bit of French. Do you know the significance of that number in French idiom? Which number? I didn't hear it. 30, 36. In, in English, we say I have a million things to do, and French is 36. 36. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> never heard that. Yeah. Well, I never heard that either, actually. Yeah, 36. Okay, guys. You got the all-powerful button there, Michael. Oh, yeah, I do. So this is a blessing. It was thank a blessing. You, thank a you, blessing. Grail Country. Thank, thank you, Sherry and Nate. Thank you for having us. And yeah, thank you very much. And we are the Regeneration Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Take care.